This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about big developments in Ukraine. Ukraine, of course, has dominated news coverage in the United States this week, but almost entirely with respect to domestic U.S. politics, and specifically to the impeachment hearings in Congress. Yet in the country, in Ukraine, there are big things going on. There's a newly announced effort to end the war in the East. There also are new efforts to fight corruption within the country. And at the center of all of this is Ukraine's relatively new president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who's been in office for less than a year and came to power with no political experience. So to help us understand what's actually going on in Ukraine, I've got two terrific experts. Melinda Herring, who's the deputy director of the Eurasian Center at the Atlantic Council, is with us. Thanks for being on Deep Dish, Melinda. Thank you, Brian. Great to be with you. Also here with us is Joanna Rohozinska, who is the Senior Program Officer for Europe at the National Endowment for Democracy. Welcome, Joanna. Great to have you on Deep Dish. Good morning. Thank you very much. So I want to start off with the, you know, the recent news about uh, new efforts to resolve the, co- the conflict going on in the eastern part of the, uh, of the country. It's just been announced that on December 9th, the leaders of France, Germany, Russia, and Ukraine are going to meet to discuss a possible resolution to this conflict. And before we talk about that resolution. I was wondering if, Melinda, you could uh, start off by just reminding us the nature of the conflict and the situation on the ground today. Sure. So 13,000 people have been killed and there are more than 1.5 million internally displaced persons. This conflict is entering its sixth year and the situation has pretty much been at a stalemate. Uh, the group that is meeting is, uh, is it's four leaders. It's the French president, the German president, the Ukrainian president, and the Russian president. And this group in this format has not met since 2016. So this is this is a big deal. Now, don't get too excited. I'm just going to cut to the chase. A major breakthrough is really unlikely, but it's important to watch. Uh, these high-level meetings are uh, visible political commitments to the negotiations. So it's important uh, to watch because there has been some momentum. President Zelensky was elected on a, a platform to try to bring peace to the East. And he's been he's been pushing this issue uh, and, and making some progress. There was a prisoner swap. There was a ceasefire. There's been disengagement in three different places. And then this week, uh, the ships, three three of Ukraine's ships have been returned finally. So th- there, there, there is some momentum. There's high expectations as well. The, the French uh, really want, uh, they, they want a resolution. And the, the Germans seem to want a resolution as well. But I, I, I don't expect a major breakthrough, and I don't think any other analysts do as well. So let's dig into this a little bit and talk about the other two folks, uh, the other two countries. What uh, does Zelensky want out of this deal? What, what's the outcome that he would be uh, aiming for? Zelensky wants peace, but it's a question of, of what that means. I mean, that means control of the Ukrainian-Russian border. It means a withdrawal of all forces on, on Ukrainian territory. Uh, it, it means a, a return to the way things were before 2014. 
Um, but that's, that's not what Russia wants. Uh, there's a law that expires at the end of the year. And this is a law that, that um, it's, it's called the special procedure for local governance in the occupied areas of Donetsk and Luhansk. Russia wants it extended, the current law, and Ukraine does not. Ukraine uh, says that that law was passed when Ukraine was in a weak position. Russia wants federalization, so it has veto power over Ukraine's foreign policy. Uh, and, and Ukraine does not want that. Uh, so the, the big debate that we're going to see on December 9th in Paris is how to resolve uh, the, the issue of these occupied territories in eastern Ukraine. And Ukraine and, and Russia uh, fundamentally disagree. So, Joanna, if I can bring you in on this, how do you see what Russia wants from this negotiation? And to, to what extent do we think they're even sincere in, in engaging in it? Well, I think that one of the things that's important to note is the fact that they're formally coming to the table, right? I mean, a lot of Russia's efforts in the past four years has been expended, or almost six years, Melinda's right, it has been expended in trying to trying to promote this idea that the local authorities in the occupied territories have a degree of autonomy. Um, this is what the idea of the federalization is, is that, you know, these are special territories that want to declare their own rights autonomously from from Russia, which not nobody's really bought, to be fair. Um, and I think the fact that Russia is formally coming to the table here kind of is a is a full acknowledgement of it. You know, what they what they want um <laughs> what they want is is not necessarily the status quo because it's also not a sustainable position for Russia, quite frankly, right, in terms of expenditures, in terms of manpower, in terms of all the rest of it. It's not a huge expenditure, but it's still one um, where if you're looking at the situation of the Russian Federation writ large is, is, is a bit of a sideshow, right? Um, you know, from the point of the Ukrainian authorities, Melinda's right. I mean, they everybody kind of wants this to end. Um, they understand that it's a destabilizing factor that holds the country back from further development simply because it's, it's you know, we're not even going to talk about Crimea right now, but in terms of the military occupation there. But that being said, Zelensky is also in a situation where poll after poll has demonstrated is that simultaneously while people want the conflict to end, they also are unwilling to to give these territories up to Russia de facto, um, which even kind of maintain them as an autonomous territory de facto means. So, so it's a little bit of a difficult situation. I mean, I think that the Ukrainians have done a really good job in trying to demonstrate a degree of goodwill in trying to fulfill some of the some of the promises that they have made in terms of the ceasefires, in terms of in terms of backing away. And there's not really been a response on the other side that has been adequate. I mean, they gave the three ships back, fair enough, but by all reports, they were stripped down to the toilet bowls, basically, right? So, I mean, they gave them back a hunk of junk. Um, you know, over the past few years of occupation, same thing. A lot of the industries that were in these territories were stripped down and shipped east as well, so that there's not a lot of there there. I mean, what's interesting is that even should these territories come back to Ukraine, they're coming back in such a fragmented state that it's going to be difficult to bring them fully back into the fold. And unfortunately, the longer that this situation continues, the more difficult it will be to reintegrate these territories back into Ukraine proper. Yeah. And and how is this playing domestically in terms of Ukrainian uh, opinion? Sounds like there's a lot at stake for, for Ukraine. Where, where's the population on this? Well, the population, I mean, as I, as I said, 
firmly sees these areas as parts of Ukraine. Um, and I mean, finally, actually, under Zelensky's new government, there's also everybody's talking more about Crimea as well, also as an integral part of the Ukrainian state. So there's that. The flip side of it is that if he is seen as bending too much to what's called the Steinmeier formula, there's already been, like the first time that he's been booed since taking presidency has been a little bit on on the on the back of this, right, of, of protests kind of against him uh, buying into the full Steinmeier formula. And so he was actually booed in Ternopil in one of the cities in Western Ukraine a while ago. So unfortunately for him domestically, it does put him in a difficult situation as it could be fodder for um, more nationalist groups as well. Um, so he has to handle this quite, quite delicately. But overall, the population, regardless of what political conviction is, does want to see these territories reintegrated into Ukraine. I, I slightly disagree with, with Joanna uh, a couple paces back. Uh, I think Russia benefits from the status quo. It's true that it costs money uh, and it, Russia uh, is concerned about domestic opinion, uh, but it doesn't really cost that much and it hasn't cost them that many lives. I think Russia's playing games. Uh, Ukraine had to do a lot of things in order to get this meeting. Uh, it, it's true that Russia gave back three boats, but it shouldn't have seized those boats in the, the first place. Joanna's right about that. Uh, and then it stripped them down. Um, it shouldn't have taken uh, 24 Ukrainian prisoners captive last November, a year ago. Uh, the Ukrainian soldiers were in, in their own, they were in, in waters that they had the legitimate right to be there. So Ukraine has had to do a lot to get this meeting in, in Paris. Yeah. And, and what role uh, is or or could conceivably the United States be playing in this? One of the things that the Trump administration did do was provide defensive weapons in order to try to change the military balance on the ground in in, in hopes of um, in hopes of driving a different outcome here. You know, we've got what's going on in the U.S. with the impeachment hearings and all, and I don't want to go there. But you know, what what is the U.S. doing at this moment where there is this opening? I think the U.S. is doing an awful lot. Um, the, the military aid obviously is quite important, as is the bilateral um, cooperation among the military forces, and including trainings and all the rest of it. So that is that is an important piece of the puzzle. The the bigger part of it, frankly, is the the significant support in terms of both financial aid, in terms of in terms of education, in terms of all of the kind of support that the U.S. is providing in concert with the European Union and other countries to actually help Ukraine in its reform efforts. I mean, you know, the realistically, there's not a tremendous amount that you could do militarily in this face-off, right? But what you can do, and what, I mean, I think I think rationally that the, or with good reason, the, the efforts have been to strengthen the Ukrainian state and to help it move forward through the reform process because its success is probably the biggest draw for the territories that are occupied on one hand, and probably the biggest the biggest um, danger actually to Russia, quite frankly, right? That a strong and successful Ukraine, um, it's a keystone state in this in the geopolitical role that it takes, and that's probably the best investment that can be made. Frankly, it's very long term, but the U.S. has always been a really strong supporter. I mean, again, I'm really glad. I don't want to go into the impeachment stuff, but what has been said a number of times is that a strong 
uh, strong both financial and political support for independent Ukraine um, from the U.S. side that's been bipartisan, bicameral, has probably been the biggest uh, the biggest input of the U.S. in all of this. And if that's sustained, and it has been sustained to date, that's probably the best contribution that can be played. Brian, I'm not going there. I'm going to say Kurt Volker's name. Don't don't freak out. Don't turn me <laughs> off the air. But uh, I think about this this question in these upcoming negotiations in terms of people. And Kurt Volker is is an outstanding negotiator. He knows all the details extremely well. He knows all the ceasefire. Uh, he knows the, uh, he knows the ceasefire agreements back, you know, all, all the details. He knows all the personalities. He knows the people. And he was, he had really, really good access. And he was whispering in Zelensky's ear and really shoring up Zelensky. Zelensky does not have a strong foreign policy team. Uh, he has an excellent foreign, foreign minister, uh, but his bench, his immediate bench from, from his crowd is weak on foreign policy. He's also new and inexperienced. So I'm, I'm afraid of what's going to happen on December 9th without uh, th- that strong U.S. support that, that Zelensky would have had without all this impeachment uh, mess. So that's a great transition to where I want to go and, and bring this part of the conversation to a close. What if what is the most important thing that we ought to pay attention to in in December 9th? Neither of you are wildly optimistic that this is going to bring a breakthrough and bring peace. But what what should we pay attention to? I think that I mean, what would my really optimistic hope would be um, would be that on the German and French side, there's more demands placed on the Russian side. Um, and there's at least wording that comes out, that there's language that comes out of this meeting that more clearly emphasizes Russia's role in this conflict explicitly um, and puts a greater onus of responsibility and ownership on them to fulfill, if not in good faith, but at least to to fulfill some of the requirements in order to move forward and take the burden off the Ukrainian side. Because, I mean, as I think both of us mentioned before, Ukraine has taken steps to try and honor this. I mean, again, a lot of it's symbolic because, I mean, you have to keep in mind that, you know, the pulling back is sometimes in a sum total of 10 meters. So there's not, there's it's not really actually impacting what's happening on the ground. But, but from my point of view, if there's a more explicit emphasis placed on responsibility and ownership on the Russian side, that's already a good, a better position that Ukraine, that it puts Ukraine in a better position moving forward. Melinda? I agree, and I hope that the Europeans continue to hold the line, continue to hold the line on sanctions. Uh, but just to be practical for a minute, um, I hope that life improves for people in eastern Ukraine. Uh, I hope that there's more more prisoner swaps and that uh, the Europeans can talk about the humanitarian situation. We have winter coming up. Uh, the situation there is really grim, especially along the contact line. People uh, don't have enough water. They don't have access to basic necessities. Uh, so, you know, if, if they can make a little bit of progress on the humanitarian side, uh, th- that would be fantastic. I want to turn to the issue of corruption and really the domestic discussions and efforts within Ukraine on corruption. Uh, One of the other uh, platforms that President Zelensky ran on uh, was, you know, he tapped into this deep kind of disgust with the political elites and corruption in the country that's been going on for a long time. And I I was wondering, before we jump into what's happening, what is... Uh, can you lay out 
kind of what is the nature of the corruption there and, and, and what drives it? Oh, God. <laughs> I'll, I'll go first, Joanna. You, you get your thoughts together. Okay. So Trump's right. Ukraine is corrupt, but there's a, a very, very large but. Uh, I think it's really important to dive into the domestic details. So Ukraine had a, a big breakthrough, and Ukraine is fundamentally different today than it was back in 2014. Uh, so there's things, there's things that we can point to. There's been massive reform in the gas sector. There's been uh, reform in the banking sector as well. Uh, and, and there's also been a number of anti-corruption institutions that have been set up. Have those anti-corruption institutions really delivered? Not yet. And there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, th- I'm not going to get into that much detail. But the point is that Ukraine is changing and that there are forces in the government, including the president, his party, and civil society that are still trying to fix this. Ukraine, Ukraine isn't saying that it's not corrupt. It, it knows it has a problem, and it's trying to address it. And I would tie the way that Zelensky sees corruption to poverty. Ukraine is the poorest country in Europe. It's even poorer than Moldova. It, it's kind of shocking. Uh, and they know that they have to fix this if they want to keep talented Ukrainians. So the, the new prime minister has said, we're going to change that. We're going to uh, increase GDP by 40% over the next five years, and we're going to increase FDI by $50 billion. Now, these are moonshot targets. They're not going to make these targets. It's good that they're thinking, though, and that they're ambitious. Uh, and, and, you know, a big p- they, they see this connection between uh, corruption and, and, and economic growth. So that, that's, that's one of the things that they've done. Uh, and in the first 50 days, they passed a raft of progressive anti-corruption laws. We can dig in on that. And they also also, um, on October 31st, they passed a law, they put a law back in their books that will finally allow uh, prosecutors to put corrupt officials who misuse their office for financial gain in jail. So th- there, there's a lot of progress. It's, it's small, and sometimes you need a microscope. Another uh, piece that I would highlight is they have a new high anti-corruption court, and this is something that the, the uh, United States and the Europeans pushed very hard on, uh, that, that is now operating, and it's delivered its first verdict. Uh, so that's that's a piece to watch as well. The the point though is yes, Ukraine is corrupt, but it's changing and it's trying to fix this. And there's forces in Ukraine uh, that are passionately daily working on this. So Joanna, one of the things that I understand is that a challenge is the concentration of wealth with the oligarchs and political power uh, that they hold. To what extent can they block this or to what extent um, are they needing to accept uh, this effort of reform? This is probably Zelensky and his government's greatest challenge, frankly, right? Um, the oligarchic system that grew up in Ukraine is similar. It has echoes, obviously, in a lot of the other former Soviet republics. Um, the Ukrainian one is quite homegrown, and it comes from two different angles. On one hand, it does come from like the criminal underworld, and on the other hand, it does come from the old communist nomenklatura, right? The, the, the elite. power. Yep. Until the Maidan, until the Revolution of Dignity, um, it was these special interests which really did largely control all the political power, which meant that the way that the parliament was set up, the decisions that were taken, they could block at will, they could pass legislation at will. So, I mean, you had this interesting kind of like ersatz democracy that functioned Um, you know, to the extent that it was open to negotiations with the European Union and all the rest of it. But in fact, power was held by 
this handful of, so you've got the large oligarchs, but frankly, it's a pattern that repeats all the way down to the local levels. Um, and it's a system of clientelism. It's a sense of, of favoritism, of looking the other way. In addition to, I mean, bribery in a way, paradoxically, is the smallest part of it. We're talking about quite large corruption, often with money being pulled off of government tenders um, and public procurement and stuff like that. It's a very long backstory, but Melinda's right. There's been lots of progress that has been made since the revolution uh, of 2014. Um, and on one hand, you know, the degree to which they could block it, they, it depends how, how tight you want to close the loopholes that they've always taken advantage of, right? Um, probably right now, the single biggest demonstrable litmus test for Zelensky is how he handles um, one particular oligarch who he has been tied to, um, whose, whose, whose name is Kołomoyski. Um, and there's a lot of indications that whatever that relationship may have been in the past is certainly in a very awkward position now. Um, and how, how certain questions get resolved in terms of like, I won't get into it also, but there was like a seizure of a bank and all the rest of it. And so how, how this one particular oligarch is handled, I think in a way is going to be quite indicative of how, of how the, the rest of it somehow ends up getting managed. There's certainly more indications of this being resolvable, now than it has been in the past. I'm much more optimistic about it, um, but we'll we'll see. You have to remember, I, I agree with Joanna, there's huge demand for change, right? Poroshenko, Poroshenko was kicked out because he didn't do enough to clean up Ukraine. He did not fulfill the, the promise of, of, of the Euromaidan. Uh, his, his 2014 campaign was living in a new way, and he was widely ridiculed, uh, you know, five years later for, for not changing anything and for the massive graft and corruption that happened on his on his watch. So Zelensky knows he has to perform on this, but Kolomoisky is exactly the litmus test that we that we have to watch. They also have done some other things, though. Uh, Joanna's right that that uh, we Americans tend to think of uh, corruption as sort of, I give this guy a 20 and he stamps my passport. It's not like that. It's like stealing from state budgets and uh, siphoning off uh, from, from, from the, the state kitty. Uh, it, it's really remarkable how much how, how corruption works there. But I, I think it's important to point to some more progress. So Ukraine has restarted the privatization pro, uh, process for real. The government's agreed to privatize a list of 800 state-owned enterprises. And these are old, uh, rusty uh, behemoths, mostly from the, the Soviet times. And those things are going to be put up for sale. Let's see if they do it. Uh, they've talked about privatization for years. If they can do it, good on them. Another thing that they did, and this is going to sound, some of these things are going to sound a little boring, but businessmen in Ukraine tell me that they're a big deal. So the RADA passed something called a state property lease law. And what it does is it unifies, it makes a database of all state property that's up for lease. So business owners will be able to find new property just using a website and using this uh, open online procurement system called ProZoro. I, uh, th people say this is a really big deal. There's also, uh, th there's also a number of other small smaller reforms. There's been a liberalization of the construction uh, industry. There's huge uh, corruption in, in, in construction. And they're also, this is going to sound minor, but it's a big deal. They're also finally regulating heavy uh, trucks on roads. Uh, businesses are cheating and they're overloading trucks and it's ruining the roads, which has a huge impact on business. If you can't get your product uh, to, to where it needs to go, because the roads are terrible and it takes three times more, that, that undercuts your business. So th there's, there's a lot to like, uh, but 
but I don't want to, I don't want to be distracted. Kolomoisky is, is the big issue on, on how, uh, the bank that, that, uh, Ukraine seized from him at the end of 2016, how that's handled, uh, is the big issue. And that will determine whether there's more foreign investment in the country. I mean, as they, as they say, it always sounds like a little bit, I think it's quoting Hamilton, right. From the, from the musical that revolution's easy governance is is hard. So the, a lot of the things that have taken place, Melinda's right they're, They seem really boring and they seem really small, but they're actually incredibly important in terms of, in terms of creating a rational, transparent and accountable governing environment. On one hand, it increases foreign investor confidence in the country, which is desperately needed. And on the other hand, it does stimulate lo- the local economy. I mean, above and beyond all of that, I mean, one of the th- missing pieces under the previous government under Poroshenko was public faith in the government actually doing its job. Um, and, you know, that is probably the single most important turning point that you have to make here, right? If you don't believe that your government is going to serve you and that the courts can actually prosecute wrongdoing, then the system starts falling apart and it just kind of it ends up free-for-all because you might as well go to the local oligarch to be your your protector because the state can't do it for you. So so there's an interesting psychological element to all this corruption as well that's quite deeply bound in. And in the 20 years that I've been working in this region, it's the most cardinal change that I have seen in any of the countries in the region, which is really positive. Yeah, that's, a, wow. that's a huge statement. And I want to bring us to a close by kind of taking a step back from the two issues that we've looked at closely, the conflict as well as corruption, and to get both each of your sense of Zelensky, he's he's uh, you know been in office less than a year. He's taken on really big issues. How is he doing? Does he continue to have the support that he needs to drive these things forward, especially as an inexperienced politician? And what do you expect uh, going forward here? Look, the honeymoon is almost over. There's some new polling data that shows that his numbers are starting to slip. He had enormous popularity, I think more than 70% at the outset. Uh, and he knew that speed was the name of the game. And if you watch what the Rada did, the parliament for the first 50 days, uh, they were they were moving at an incredible speed. I've, I've never seen them act, act so fast. They passed something like 70 bills in 50 days, but it was speed over quality. That's one of the, the big uh, the big complaints is that Zelensky and his new team are inexperienced and they're passing things for the sake uh, of checking boxes. They put out, uh, they, 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 they talk a really big game. They, they put out uh, very detailed plans that, that received a lot of praise, but the question is whether they can deliver. And the other question is if they can keep their political party together. And it's, I'm using political party in generous terms. It's, it's, it's various different groups and there's indications that, that they may not be able to keep it together. So, you know, one of the big challenges is going to be keeping, keeping the momentum together so that he has the votes in parliament. Uh, he, he can pass what he wants right now. Uh, he also may have to replace, uh, replace some of, of, of his technocrats soon as well. There's, there's rumors that the prime minister is on his way out. So that, that, that's another piece. Uh, but he really needs, he needs to dig in on on anti-corruption and, and pass these things and really focus. I'm really unimpressed with his judicial reform. Joanna mentioned that courts are everything. Uh, and Poroshenko tried judicial reform. It didn't work. Uh, Zelensky has just passed a new bill. And activists say, yeah, maybe we can get some good things out of it. But I would not give it a clean bill of health. It, it will not hire, fire, and discipline judges. And, and that that is the key to Ukraine's uh, transformation. But I'm also worried about foreign policy as well, for all the reasons we've uh, already spoken about. Joanna? I am 
curious to see what's going to happen moving forward. I remain cautiously optimistic. I think that a lot of it is is moving beyond. I mean, his kind of inner circle are people who were tied to Kfartal uh, 95, to the TV series and to his, and to his kind of, how would you say, um, comedy career previously. But they were, they're a fairly astute bunch in terms of public relations and what makes things spark. Um, the degree to which they understand their limitations and what the consequences of those will be, I think we'll, we'll see in the next six months. The polling data that Melinda referred to, you know, it's natural that, of course, everybody's going to come off of like a massive high that they had in terms of the, in terms of both the presidential and the parliamentary elections. Um, and clearly there was an understanding of what the consequences of that were because there was previously talk about pulling up local elections towards the end of the year and they have put that off. And it seems that they're going to be put off until at least June and probably the date that they were supposed to be, which is second half last year, which demonstrates a degree of, um, awareness of what the situation is. And so it's going to be curious what's going to happen probably in the next month or two in terms of shifting of positions and bringing people on board who, who more thoroughly understand and could navigate both the domestic intricacies of some of the reforms that have to be put through. And yes, and on the foreign policy side as well. So they seem to there's people who have they have been slowly bringing in to undersecretary positions in different ministries that seems to indicate an awareness of that. So I think that's one of the things to track moving forward. Melinda Herring of the Atlantic Council and Joanna Rohozinska of the National Endowment for Democracy. I want to thank you both for being on and helping us understand developments in Ukraine today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. I would encourage your listeners to go to Kiev and give it a chance for themselves. And I want to thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like today's episode, please tap the share button and send it to them. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.